0: Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Jarrell Mason, better known as J. Mason Summer. Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have a man that's currently in radio as the pro- promotions, productions director, and on-air personality for Midwest Communications. We're going to get into the stories of radio, how we both got into the business, how me got out the profession what needs to change and how can radio find its place right now in the current state of media with podcasting and the internet so ladies and gentlemen let's give a big round of applause to mr jeff johnson jeff thank you for coming on beyond the album cover sir it is a pleasure to be here thank you for having me man i appreciate you coming on i see you got the go tiger
1: shirt repping the lsu tigers now, as we are taping this today, we're coming off a victory. I feel sorry for my Mississippi State friends. We we put a, a hurt on you, but it's okay. It's it's okay. You yeah. know, in SEC football, anything can change any minute.
0: Yes, I'm an SEC football fan, but basketball wise, I'm an ACC guy. Coming from Tobacco Road, Tar Heels, but all of that is starting to get erased now with the regionality, with all the conferences realigning, and with the recent additions of Cal. SMU and Stanford into the ACC starting next year it feels like the regional rivalries the tradition of college football is being thrown to the wayside because of money and it feels like what the regional wrestling territories went through when Vince McMahon gobbled them up in order to take WWF at the time now E nationwide
1: yep it literally is a whole new ball game
0: Yep. So get ready to have the chicken bowl between SMU and the Carolina schools, Wim's Chicken, a Dallas Fort Worth Staple. And of course, gotta wanna, gotta need it, gotta have it, Bojangles. Bojangles best chicken chain. Don't at me, at your mama.
1: My wife lived in North Carolina for a while and she introduced me to Bojangles. I'm I I I know now. I know better.
0: Yeah, and for those of you that are foodies, if you really wanna. Get your foodie on, take a Bowberry biscuit, either a sausage patty or a Cajun filet biscuit. Put it inside of the Bowberry biscuit. You will not disappoint me. Thank me later. There you go. There you go. So let's go ahead and jump right on to it. Where were you born? How did you get into radio? And what was the first record you remember buying with your own money? Or that your parents gave you and say, here, go down to the local record store and get this record because I know you like it so much.
1: I was born in Shreveport, Louisiana, grew up in a little bitty town, uh, K through 12 school. Like there were literally 17 people in my graduating class. And I was one of those kids that everything changed on my eighth birthday when I got a cassette recorder. I used to take and record the radio and like back announce records and pretend I was on the radio. I knew what I wanted to do. From from that age. The first tapes and records that I remember buying with my own money were Midnight Stars, No Parking on the Dance Floor, Billy Joel's An Innocent Man and Starship Knee Deep in the Hoopla. So I was like all over the place. But my main thing that I liked when I was a kid was hip hop, pop and like some rock. You know, I was kind of all over the place and like jazz from an early age. I don't know where I got that from, but I've always been into that. And you and I first connected when I saw some of your posts on social media, we were talking about concerts and our love of new edition. The first concert I ever went to was the Any e. Heartbreak Tour. It was I'll be sure, Bobby Brown, opening up for new edition. And then I later learned when they did the mini series that the show I was at in Shreveport was the show where everything went down where they w- where the breakup really really took place so that's where it all started for me what about you
0: wow um well i am originally from gaston north carolina born in richmond virginia and from a young age, I pretty much grew up watching BT Video Soul, Soul Train, wanting to be Donnie Simpson, Don Caniz, and listening to K97.5, which is influential urban radio station in the Raleigh-Durham Triangle area in North Carolina. And the first concert I can remember attending was New Edition Tour. It was 12 years ago. It was all six, and the concert... It was the day before Whitney Houston's funeral because she had passed a couple of days prior and Bobby was at that show, you know, surprisingly. But um, let's talk about that Heartbreak tour that you went on to see New Edition, I'll Be Sure. And Bobby Brown, right, when Don't Be Cruel was bubbling. I mean, it was smart for MCA to release both Don't Be Cruel and Heartbreak on the same day, and then for them to go on tour together. Given all the stuff we kind of sort of found out during the min- miniseries, it was felt like it was a win-win for the group.
1: Yeah. It was a great show, um, and I remember Albie sure opened up. He first opened up, and you remember you can remember a show and what you saw in the visuals, even if they're simple, if they're well done. Mm-hmm. Like When he came out, he dropped down the biggest mirror ball that I've ever seen in my life hit spots on all sides and just lit up the Coliseum. And his vocals were just as good as anything you would ever hear on the radio. I mean, it sounded just like the record. Bobby, Bobby put on a show. I mean, you were coming off of, like you said, by this point, it was the fall of 1988. And he's already dropped three singles from that album because you were already looking at Don't Be Cruel. You're looking at My Prerogative. And I can't remember if every little step had been out. I forget the order of the single release. I think Don't Be Cruel was the first thing, if I'm not mistaken. But then new edition, just priceless. I mean, just absolute priceless. Johnny Gill had slid in, you know, slid in and come into his own as the lead vocalist now. And they all traded off. Now, this was back before, like there was still some tension between Bobby and the boys, you know, right there. So it wasn't like this tour that we just saw where they're kind of everybody's kind of doing their own thing because in the new tour from people that i've seen it in videos that i've seen you're gonna get new edition stuff bobby's stuff ralph's stuff Johnny stuff some belted stuff they were almost like complete separate entities you know
0: yeah because there's a video online um somebody had posted heartbreak tour bobby's full set new edition's full set bobby's set was only 35 minutes in any set's was a little over an hour. And I was just like, man, Bobby in 35 minutes, I'm sure he gave them that smoke and said top
1: that. Oh, pretty much. I mean, it really was one of those deals where Bobby could, you could have easily, you know, the shows where you have these co-headlining shows where you have, where they flip, new edition could have opened for Bobby. Bobby left everything right out on the stage.
0: Yeah. And it was definitely back during that era where they weren't ducking competition. where you took an act on tour with you. And if they got hot, there wasn't no going to the manager and saying, Hey, we want you off the tour because you bring too much heat. That lets you know, oh, we got to go back in the rehearsal space and be better because they coming. Shout out to Deion Sanders in prime time in Colorado as they take on Colorado State tonight. And they're going to put a hurting on the Rams of Colorado State because they coming and they're here.
1: Yeah, like you said, you got to have that motivational speech from the uh, If It Isn't Love video going into it. You got to give them the show they want to see.
0: Yep, because how you look in rehearsal is how you come across on stage. Shout to Brooke Payne, the silent one, the seventh member of any, you can go on YouTube to catch my throwback interview with him. Now, being from Louisiana and with hip-hop coming into its own in the 80s and 90s, we hear about what was coming out of New York, what was coming out of L.A. and every other region had their own sounds and scenes. So was it around this time during the mid to late 80s and early 90s that you started to hear of what would become known as bounce music and the origins of it with DJ Jimmy, uh, early Manny Fresh and pre No Limit, pre Cash
1: Money? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You could feel that that early, early influence of the no-limit uh, cash money stuff taking over way back, no pun intended, taking over for the 8-9. But you still had a lot of influence from both East and West Coast in the Houston Sound. Uh, You're looking at all these acts coming out of Texas. I mean, they were dominating well, what the kids were listening to, what we were listening to back then. Even if it, we couldn't get enough because where we were we were always six months, it felt like, behind the nation. You know what I mean? It, we were we were the last ones to get a lot of stuff. And whenever we would gravitate towards stuff, we were on it when it was coming out. I mean, all the way down from back when SWAS came out, when Mix-A-Lot was first coming out, those records and stuff like that. Um, I remember just basically for me, I was always an East Coast guy. I always liked the stuff coming out of New York East Coast the Atlanta sound, stuff like that. What were you, I mean, where were you at this time? What were you listening to?
0: Um, Well, for me being four or five years old at the time, I can remember um, watching BT, Video Soul, Rap City, and hearing a lot of the sounds that were coming out of New York, out of LA. And of course, you mentioned Houston with Rap-A-Lot, Ghetto Boys, all the acts came out of there. then later, Memphis with 8 Ball, MJG. Then of course, everything that was, coming out of Atlanta with what LaFace had going on and then what later was to come with Outkast, Organized Noise, Ludacris, and all the rap acts that later came out of Atlanta.
1: And you go back to me. I was a big, big, big fan of Rick Rubin and the stuff he was doing with Def Jam. Uh, I was big into, I first got my first taste of, when, when I think of rapping, the first time I ever heard rapping, my first, introduction if you will it was run dmc period and it was the king of rock album i remember being a young kid and having older friends that we played basketball with and these were the tapes and the things we were bringing on the bus to listen to and then when raising hell came out that in 86 that was just a game changer to me i've i've i sound like a broken record when i start talking about how important that album was for music period, especially Walk This Way. I think Walk This Way is probably the most, the Run-DMC, Rick Rubin-produced version of that song is the most important, one of the most important records of all time because what it did was it brought hip-hop into the mainstream. It brought hip-hop into the suburbs and gave a whole new audience, at the same time, saving the career of Aerosmith. I mean, just brilliant, just an absolute, that whole album was brilliant. Right, and you got
0: to give Rick Rubin credit for saying, no, we're not just going to sample Walk This Way from Toys in the Attic, we're going to redo it, and that's going to open up a whole new demographic, a whole new market, and like you said, it was one of those early records that ended up taking rap mainstream, and I'm sure it probably got some airplay on some rock stations, oh, and yeah. that I kind of felt that was the same formula that Delicious Vinyl did with Tone Loke when oh, he wow. did Wild Thing, and... Funky Cole Medina with them sampling Jamie's Crime by Van Halen on Wild Thing and then Foreigners Hot Blooded on Funky
1: Cole Medina. Absolutely. And then you look at the stuff that was still happening out and that sound that was we were hearing on more of those Def Jam records. Like when you had um LL's second album, when you had Bigger and Deafer come out, you look at the stuff that he was doing and the variety of sounds that were on that. That was a a pop rock hip-hop record that just hit all the buttons, checked all the boxes for everybody. Definitely, I um, mean, that record, and the Beastie Boys, Lessons to Ill was another one. And the, and that set off the whole tour because they went on to open up Run DMC for uh, a nice long run that year. I did not get to see that tour. I wish I would have. But License to Ill, if you look back now, there are songs on there that they talk about that it opened up new avenues for them to bring live instruments and live funk into their performances. The other was just party rock, you know, kind of stuff that they didn't feel was representative of their sound. Like, I think if you see their set list in the last years that they were, you know, touring um, back up until the the last tour, you weren't going to find a lot of representation of Licensed Ill on that tour. It was mostly the later stuff. Yeah,
0: because I was surprised that, Once License to Ill became a hit, and of course, you know, record labels say, hey, let's go where the money's at. Let's go back into the well, and let's do a License to Ill too." They said, no, we're going to go in a different direction sound-wise and
1: creatively, and then came Paul's Boutique. Paul's Boutique is just, and here's the thing. I don't know if you were like me. It's one of those things that it had to grow on me. It was an acquired taste, because I remember going to Sam Goody, buying my copy. I remember I bought a cassette copy and it the tape was red it was a red cassette and i remember the single on the radio at the time was hey ladies that was the lead track but once you got beyond that that album was almost psychedelic i mean there was there was no rhyme or reason if you will to that album it was just brilliant and it, but at the time myself at that age i was 16 i did not like what i was hearing i wanted that licensed to ill too but then as you go on and your your taste kind of matures, it does it's it's a brilliant album but let's talk about somebody we just talked about let's go back to ll you look at walking with a panther by the time you got there his sound was evolving and then you move even further down um what was it 14 shots to the dome that album do you remember when that came out how strange that was a lot of people didn't know how to take it Yeah, I believe that
0: came out in 93. And funny you mention LL. I just recently went to go to the Force Tour down in Albuquerque. I saw him, Rakim, Bone the Harmony was the guest act on the bill. Big Boy was on the bill. He brought Sleepy Brown with him. And The Roots, Jazzy Jeff, DJ Z Trip, LL's DJ. And for me, it felt like watching Rap City, Yo on TV Raps, video music box. You know about that if you're from the tri-state area. The box, music that you can control and you had to sneak and hope that your parents didn't see the phone bill for all those charges. And it was just a celebration of hip-hop, especially now with it being 50 and just how it was born out of nothing, out of struggle, out of necessity because during that time, it was right around when policies were getting changed to where After school programs, cut. Music education, cut. So what are you going to do? Let's take these pieces of records that's in our parents' and grandparents' collections. Take these turntables. Figure out ways to manipulate records. Keep kids busy, active, off the streets and out of danger. And sure enough, it is now the world's most popular genre of music. And you pretty much throw hip-hop on anything, corporations want to get in business with them.
1: See Sprite, for oh. example. Oh, absolutely. Look at look at the, the the fan reaction to the Super Bowl show year before last. Mm. I mean, people lost their minds to be able to see Dre and Snoop and all these artists that they love seeing so much. It's now used to what was considered, you know, counterculture is now mainstream. It's It's who we are now. If you see one of the songs that you liked in high school, being represented in a product like Montel Jordan being represented by what tax company it was like a tax preparation software. Maybe it was TurboTax, mm. you know, that's how hip hop has permeated the mainstream funds. Right. Which was something that was
0: unfathomable 50 years ago. Now back to the radio side of things. What was the first station that you interned at and was it a long process between internship or novice in to getting your own
1: time slot. Going back, I knew the one thing I got to give a shout out to the station. You mentioned the one that you listened to. Growing up, mine was in Shreveport. It was KTUX, Tux 99. I can still tell you to this day, the lineup. It started with uh, Ken Shepard and uh, Bobby Cook in the morning, Art Simon in middays, The Real John Steele in afternoons, Machine Gun Dave, 7 to midnight, and Moondog, midnight to 6.
0: Wait a minute. You said The Real Don Steele, right? Real, uh, real John
1: Steele. He real probably stole it Steel. from Don.
0: Okay, I thought you were saying the real Don Steele, and we're speaking of the real Don Steele from ninety-three KJ Boss Radio, but that's not that guy. But that radio station was the format top forty,
1: top forty, and just killer. I mean, this was a station. This station, you know how now we want to give out swag. We want to we want to give out our shirts. We want to, you know, put those on everybody. This station was so popular, they sold their shirts. There was a t-shirt shop in the mall. It was in Pierre Bossier Mall in Bozier City, Louisiana. You could go and buy a radio station shirt. And th- this station was so hot. Every kid, you had to have a Tux 99 t-shirt. And so th- I knew I, I have to do this. So you fast forward. I started DJing when I was 13, Um, parties, proms my mom i kind of got into it organically my mom was one of those students she taught at my school when she was the student council sponsor and they needed a dj and i was like i'll do it and that's where it started and i started djing very young i had two turntables but i also had i didn't have a mixer i had had it running through a pa system so i would kind of have to do manual crossfades it was clunky it was rough until I finally got my first stuff. But as far as the first radio station I ever worked at was the radio station in college, 91.7 KNWD in Natchitoches, Louisiana. And then when I was going to school there at Northwestern, my job while I was going to school, are you familiar with Tom's Snacks, like Tom's Chips? Yeah, they have those in North Carolina?
0: Yes, I'm familiar with Tom's. I was born, bra- raised, and bred off Tom's. Shout out to the elementary school snack line for helping me out.
1: And you know them the, those hot fries. Yes. And so, so I, my first job was driving a Tom's truck on a vending machine route, and the vending machine at the radio station was on my route. And one day I went in, and you know how a lot of times if the vending machine takes your money, people will put sticky notes and say it owes you or whatever. Uh-huh. Well, I had gone and return the money that was owed to people that it had taken to the station manager. A little bitty short lady. She was probably about five, four. Her name was Iris Harper. And she's who gave me my first break in radio because I told her, I said, you know, I'm going to school. I'm studying uh, mass communication with an emphasis in broadcasting. And if you have anything, I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, And she told me if I could sell, I could start next week. So I got my foot in the door in sales, knowing that's not what I wanted to do. And I had been there about three or four months. Well, of course, I had to go back to the Tom's place and tell them I was giving my two weeks notice. They were understanding, let me go. And I went to work for the radio station. And I had only been there maybe three or four months. And I'd started writing and producing some of my own commercials. And they, as you know, in radio had had somebody let go. And I came into work one day and basically I was told at that point that I was now the production director because I wasn't very good at sales and I'm long gone air. And I started doing middays and that's, that's how it took off. Let me tell you folks, those who know radio sales,
0: unless you are a talker persistent and can be consistent with your sales. If you get a nightclub spot or car spot, those are your money spots when you are selling. If you're not getting those consistently, sales that ain't it. And I'm sure you came in the era when it was carts, so you had to oh, do the yes. edits with the, the the groove block, the the razor blade. Yes, sir. I'm like, whoo, Thank God I came along with Adobe Audition because I don't think my stand my hand would have been steady enough to. Oh, make no. It.
1: I was probably one of the first generation that worked on digital sound editing. The first one I worked on was saw sound audio workshop. And basically I had went in there on weekends, just trying to teach myself how to use this. And it wasn't long. This isn't even when like Casey Casey was still coming on records. Mm -hmm. It was on vinyl and you would have to have, that was one of your part-timer positions. This was, they, if, You work in radio and weren't in it back then, you wouldn't even know what it looked like because, like, the top 40 countdowns came in on records. You and I were making commercials and putting them on carts. We were still slicing tapes and putting dubs on reel-to-reel. It was crazy.
0: Yeah, one of the radio stations where I used to work at, it was a a 1400 AM gospel station. And they still had a spin pop board with the A&P switch. On the top, I was like, I thought they went out in the seventies or eighties, but nope, it was it was still working. So it was one of those stations where we did local high school football. Oh yeah, and, um, one of those towns where you couldn't really keep anybody, so you pretty much had your rest of your programming be filled by syndicated stuff. And when it's syndicated, I'm gonna tell you all the dirty little secret for those that don't know radio. Come closer, Teddy are I'm going to say it again. They are not in the same area where you are. You send them liners. You send them notes to say, hey, let's make the show more local. And they say, WXYZ FM is having blah, blah, blah at blah, blah, blah on blah, 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 located on blah, 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 blah. Stay tuned on WXYZ 99.9 FM. And to make it sound like that, they're right there in your living room.
1: And that can either work for you or against you. Because a lot of times you would send that stuff off to these t- for these liners And you know what it's like, especially in the South, especially in Louisiana. The name is not pronounced the way it looks. It is totally different. And so there will be a town like Robeline, which is spelt Robline. And you'll get liners back and stuff that will go on the air and somebody didn't proof it. And you'll hear a town mispronounced in your broadcast area. Your listeners will let you know real quick
0: that something was wrong. Yes, I'm sure you had to put the pronunciations in there for wherever we're doing the reads and the copy to make sure that the towns were pronounced correctly. Because like you said, folks would get heated if something got mispronounced. And the biggest highlight, I think for me, when listening to local radio growing up, was you would call in the request line. And you would tape yourself calling the radio station for that request or when they would do a hit at your high school for the Friday night games and giving the scores yep. and giving the updates.
1: Yeah. And I remember that one of the most popular segments on this radio station, I was telling you about tux 99. They had uh, the dedication hour at nine o'clock every Monday through Friday and trying to get through that radio station. Tr- you would just keep dialing, just keep dialing, trying to get in. And everybody would hear all their friends on the air. That was the, th- that was the thing. You had to be on request dedication. And you would take that and bring that the next day, like you say, so you could play it back. That was what it was. You were living for that.
0: Right. Now, what were some of the radio stations in Louisiana, especially in your market, or probably New Orleans, that really embraced rap when other stations across the country were still doing day parts where they were only airing, on the weekends or overnights where it wouldn't affect the books or kind of like how K-Day was doing out in L.A., but it was on an AM stick. What were some of the stations in Louisiana that were some of the first
1: adopters of rap music? I will tell you this. KQID in Alexandria, Louisiana was jumping on it. I mean, they they were on it quick. Uh, KBCE and Boyce. Uh, shout out to my friend DJ Incredible, Um, who is still on that station, does a great mix show on there. He was, he and I met at Northwestern back, gosh, it was 1990, 91 in there. And he was DJing at the college station and he's been DJing. That's one of the heritage urbans down there in central Louisiana. And now he is on the number one rated station in Baton Rouge, KQ 106.5, Q106.5. And uh, that station down there and Boyce was killing it. And honestly though, that's one of the things about the South. They were, for me, your CHR stations, your top 40 stations, they were wrapping their arms around it. Now granted, it was the pop stuff. I'm talking stuff like we were talking about Tone Loke and Young MC and the BC Boys, LO Cool J. They were playing that stuff. Um, you had for the more underground stuff, you had to go to some of those stations in New Orleans, which at that time were a little bit out of my listening area, you know, but I was familiar with what they were doing and they were jumping
0: on. Right. And like how you mentioned, Top 40 adopted pretty much the pop rap stuff. And it almost kind of sounded like they were going into more of the urban appearance where we got the Top 40 Formulatics, but we got the Urban Playlist. So pretty much what uh, the radio station in San Francisco was doing, 106 Kimmy L, shout out to Keith Nafterly, that same thing where we're going to take the urban playlist, but
1: just give it a pop top 40 facelift. Oh, absolutely. That's exactly what they were doing because they knew that's what the kids were wanting to hear. I mean, you had moved through this weird movement of when you went from the mid eighties into the late 80s, I would say from 84 to 87 was really dominated with a lot of rock and a lot of pop stuff. The hair band thing was going on. The hair band was still strong in that part of the country all the way up to about 90. Shreveport was one of those pass-through cities where every band making their way from Dallas down to New Orleans was picking up every show. Same route was being followed by the big hip-hop tours. I mean, in one summer, you might see White Snake or Motley Crue and Def Leppard. And then the next week, it was going to be the NWA tour. It was the Any Heartbreak tour. Everybody was coming through then. It was a great time. And like you mentioned,
0: Shreveport being like that middle market where you got Dallas here, you got New Orleans here. So you know you're going to get some crossover or you're going to go down to either Dallas or New Orleans to catch a major show if they weren't going to come to Shreveport. So... I'm sure those radio station promos for concert tickets were
1: successful. Oh, they were fire! There was a place up in Shreveport called Stan's Record Shop that they would do these partnerships with. And it was like those countdowns, like we're going to start on Monday for row five and row four and three all the way down to you got front row meet and greets. And that was the day when artists were a lot more approachable. You you could get a lot more backstage stuff. You could get a lot more artist interaction. And for the fans, take some of these tours today. It's cost prohibitive for a lot of people to even see these shows. But back in the day, I used to tell my oldest son the magic number was $34. If you had $34 in your pocket, you could get a general admission floor ticket for $17 and buy a T-shirt and and have money for both. It It was not like it is at all today. No,
0: cause I was just telling a friend of mine. Um, we both went to the Force Tour at separate shows, and I was telling him I had got him, I got myself a hoodie, and the hoodie was sixty
1: five. I was like, man, the merch at these concerts are ridiculous. I, th- but you know what? I'm not mad, Adam. You know, and this is the thing: the way these tickets are handled now by these ticket by Ticketmaster and things like this, it's the artists don't see half that money. The dynamic pricing and stuff like that—that's not for them. So the only way they can recoup some of that, especially coming after the the COVID crisis where they weren't even on the road, is to make that merch money. But it is. There was um, some of these, even the new artists are charging just $40, $50 a T-shirt. It's crazy. But, I mean, I guess you got to get it ever you can. Yeah, and uh, there was
0: a special that aired maybe two weeks ago on Vice. They were talking about the whole Ticketmaster thing and Taylor Swift and how folks had four or five computers lined up at a time to get into the line to get pre-sale access or early access to buy tickets and how these scalpers would buy a good bulk of these tickets, resell them at three and four times the markup,
1: leaving the average fan priced out of going to a show. But see, and you know what's not fair to a lot of those fans too, or to those artists, is a lot of people who don't know or have that insider knowledge to know what is happening, they think it's these fans, these artists who are trying to charge these prices. They have nothing to do with it. Like even veteran heritage artists, like I was gonna go to the Anita Baker show in Chicago and I was looking at t- ticket prices for that show. And I mean, you're in the nosebleeds for two and $300. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that, that was the co-headlining show with Babyface and Anita Baker. The, it, they, they're, they're getting those prices too. First run. You know, it's crazy.
0: Yeah, $200, $300 for a nosebleed seat. They can miss me with that. But if you go back and look at the lawsuit, I believe Eddie Vedder and Pearl Jam brought up against Ticketmaster back in the early 90s. He was waving the flag at that. Then when Ticketmaster brought out Ticketron and a lot of the other ticket outlets so that way they could become the only game in town. And now with Ticketmaster and Live Nation merging and knowing that Live Nation owns these venues. Ticketmaster being the exclusive ticketing partner of Live Nation is pretty much where they're in cahoots and they can pretty much charge wherever they want because they're the only game in town with no competition.
1: Yeah. And they'll go to these artists and they'll say, hey, we want you to do 30 dates. Here's $50 million for your overhead. And then they make that deal and then it's up to Live Nation and Ticketmaster to do whatever they want. And it's funny. You watch these ticket prices. It's like the stock market. You can go on there and look one day and it's one price and the next, you know, you might be $200 up or down. And a lot of people I've talked to now, what they've started doing, if you are patient enough and are willing to roll the dice, wait to the day of the show you know, if you can do it, if you can hold out because you can get some great deals, but that's there's no way to plan for that, you know? Right,
0: and, you know, back to radio, um, one of the reasons why I got out was that it wasn't fun like it was pre-Telecom Act of 96 where these corporations got in and say, we're going to program all of these stations to play the same songs, take the personality out, dictate armchair quarterback from an office in San Antonio, L.A., or whatever, what have you, and say, we know what songs or song works in this particular market. Whereas back then, your local PD or MD had say over what goes on your station's top 20, 30, 40, or however many playlists because records vary from region to region. If you go back and look at the old industry trades like Radio and Records, BRE, Black Radio Exclusive, and you would see compilations of playlists from different stations in different regions of the country. And oh, you yeah. notice, okay, this record may work in the Midwest, but this record doesn't work in the Southeast
1: or the Northeast or the or the West Coast. And it's even more complicated in states like you and I grew up in. You take a state like Louisiana, it's even more complex than that. You could say, well, this station, this song is playing well in Cincinnati and it's not playing well in New Orleans. Well, it might not be playing well in New Orleans, but it's doing good in Shreveport because you got all these regions where in Louisiana, you can go an hour and a half in any direction and you got a completely different vibe. I mean, there have been times when when I was a mobile DJ and doing parties and proms and stuff, mm-hmm. you could go your set that would be killing it in northeast or northwest Louisiana. You go down a little ways. They don't want to hear anything you're doing. Because you might be either six months early on a record or six months late. You know, it's it's totally different.
0: Yeah, that's what Kid Capri was talking about in his interview with Questlove Supreme, where when he would go DJ in different areas, he would always get in touch with the local DJ to get an intel on what's going on in that city, what's the hot records. Show love to the DJ there because you're a guest in their house and right. it would be ignorant of you to go do your own set and not know what the local crowd, what the local market is into.
1: Oh, absolutely. And like you said, that, that act of 1996 was a game changer because then you had these regional program directors who were just forcing playlists down these program directors' throats. And the problem is they're trying to go for this homogenous sound where you can get in your car and drive, and you still hear it today. You can drive from New York to L.A. and you might hear Ryan Seacrest the whole way on an iHeart station. And And if you really listen, I don't think they give radio listeners enough credit. They can tell something that's not genuine. They can tell when it's not from their market. They can tell a lot of these air personalities, they might have voice tracking for, I don't know, 10, 15 stations. And then you start thinking about if that's their only job is punching out voice tracks. For all these stations, what kind of content are you getting? What kind of localization at all? Yeah, you're not really, really getting that. So like I said,
0: it's one of these deals where you got to go to pretty much a medium or small market to get that localization feel where I know the personality that's on the air. I know that they're going to be at the local high school on Friday night broadcasting the game or I know they're going to be at the local community college doing play by play for the basketball or the football team. But the bigger the market you go, you tend to lose sight of that. So after that station where you initially worked at, did you end up doing the hopscotch across the country where you were picking up and moving, going from market to market? Or did you find some sense of comfortable, really, comfortability staying in one particular market or one region of
1: the country? I stayed pretty much in one region of the country. I hopped up from there. I went from, Natchitoches was an unrated market. I made my way back up to Shreveport and then I moved to Baton Rouge and got on a top 75 station and was doing, um, started doing afternoons there. Wasn't doing that very long before I was tapped to program a station they were getting ready to flip to a hot AC, uh hot adult contemporary. For people that don't know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like top 40 music for people who are a little bit older. You know, it's a little skews a little bit older. Uh, I was doing that and I was doing nights in New Orleans. So I pretty much stayed there. Um, this move up here to the Midwest has been a little bit different. Um, the, the the music that up here, I will find they do have that autonomy to play a lot more of the music that they want to play. And they're, they're in 16 markets, they have 81 stations. And so they do a good job, but it is, it's vastly different from what of the music that we were playing uh, back in Louisiana and in the South. A lot, skews a lot different.
0: Yeah, now the station that you're overseeing before the flip, I was curious, did they stunt before the flip or did they go in cold? For those that don't know what a stunt is, a stunt is where when the is getting ready to switch formats, They'll do something to drive away the TSL and the QN, so that way you're going to alert people like, hey, this station is no longer going to be around. We're going to go do something new. They may play the same song over and over on a loop until the launch or do something silly just to sort of give you a heads up to say, hey, we're going to switch
1: formats. Did that station do any stunting before uh, the big flip? This one stunt, it was such a cold flip because they had... This is when Citadel, before Citadel bought Cumulus, they had all these, what I like to call boutique formats that were really, really kind of drilled down on a particular audience. This was a hundred thousand watt radio station called Diva 103.3, music for the diva and you. And their target audience was females 18 to 34. And you were shooting in a very narrow bullseye and they saw quickly that didn't work. So they wanted to go hot AC and go sunny 103.3. So it was a cold flip, but I've been part of a stunt. When we flipped one station, we were getting ready to make a change and it was going to go to uh, Gen X. That was another little format they were doing. On midnight of Halloween, we went all Christmas for two weeks and people thought it was the craziest thing because this is before they started doing this. Because, you know, a lot of stations that go all Christmas go Christmas early. Mm-hmm. We went all Christmas for two weeks, the first the la- first two weeks of November. And that was unheard of. This was back 2007, somewhere in there. So, yeah, I've seen some crazy stunts.
0: Yeah, that's definitely uh, crazy. But typically when a stunt happens the gm and the owners they pretty much have that meeting in that conference room and i'm sure you've been in those meetings say hey we're gonna make a change in format we're gonna let all of you go or we're gonna retain some of you go see so-and-so in hr here's your severance package you can stay if you would like if you want to stay on with the format but your services are
1: no longer needed yeah Fortunately I never got part it was in one of those big cuts but they definitely happened. The most amazing stunt was that uh, that station I told you about in Shreveport that first started it for me um that was I can't remember the calls before they switched to KTUX but for almost 30 days there's this crazy novelty record called they're coming to take me away and if you ha- it's by a group called Napoleon the 14th and it is the weirdest, craziest song. They played this song for 30 days. And every kid in my school was just dialed in to find out what was going to happen. And like you said, that's the objective. It brings about attention. You know something's going to happen. You don't know what. They had a station up here in Wisconsin, in Oshkosh, that they were going to flip from a, a hot AC station to alternative. They, their stunt was... Weird Al Radio. They were playing nothing but Weird Al Yankovic records for like two weeks. They even did Imaging. It was crazy.
0: Wow, that's crazy. And you and I, we came up in the era of radio back when when you used to get singles. They would have album version and single version with no rap. And most top 40 stations would play the single version with no rap. And then at this time, urban stations were having their liners absolutely no rap because rap was still brand new. And a lot of people still didn't want to give it its credibility to being, hey, let's add this to the regular rotation. So much so that when I go back and think about 1580 K Day, and then uh, Power 1490 out in Tucson, Arizona. Shout out to r And some of these AM stations that really embraced rap and how when a clean, clear FM stick became available, these station owners didn't have the foresight to say, hey, let's take this, put it on this, so that way we could get more reach and that we could be able to maximize our advertising dollars. Because in radio... It's all about the ad revenue.
1: Oh yeah. And like you say, it's interesting to see a lot of those those edits still were continuing on into the late 90s. I mean, you take a record uh, like um no scrubs. There were two edits. There was the there was the AC edit, there was the top 40 edit, you know, and there were well, there was actually three. There was the urban AC edit where Lisa's rap was not on the one that you might hear. And it might be in the same building. You could hear hear two different versions of that cut. And one of the was listening and thinking about these first records that were where you had a vocalist who had a rap bridge or a breakdown. I think one of the first ones that really did well was Jody Watley's friends was the first mix like that where you had a rap verse in an r and b or hip hop record
0: right. And then how we mentioned Bobby Brown, how with Don't be Cruel, he was rapping on that. And I'm sure some top forty stations, had a version to where his raps were edited out and while the urban stations pretty much played what was the release single by the label. And it was just a changing of the guard where you had those who were older in charge, the young were the personalities yeah. and it was where You weren't really attuned to that because rap wasn't for that generation. It was for the young. So it kind of put station owners and those who had the power decisions at a crossroads to say, do we embrace this because it's good for the bottom line? Or do we just say, nah, it's not my lane. I'm going to get out and
1: let somebody young take over. And what's interesting is like, you'll even see that even today on classic hit stations. Here's a record that has that. And it is the most I can't pedestrian lame rap of a song that I can think of. And Michael Jackson's Black or White, a lot of stations, the classic hit stations, cut out the rap that is the bridge. There's a way to cut it where it just goes from that that la from that chorus into that last verse, you know, and cuts out the rap.
0: Hmm. That is that is interesting. And it's funny how you mention. You know, all of these formats and how over in Europe and other international countries, radio stations are more broad, where Mm -hmm. regardless of the genre, we're going to play it. But as you and I know, both of us being from the South, there's a dirty R word that comes into play. It's called racism. And in the radio format world. Pretty much top 40 AC, hot AC, urban, urban AC, hip hop, whatever format. It's pretty much just musical segregation.
1: I mean, you really have it. My wife, uh, it was a couple years ago now. We were listening to the radio, and she had I one of the one of the only selfish things I ever did as a program director is I wanted to put the old Casey Kasem top 40 countdowns from the 80s on, put them on Saturday mornings. Turned out it did great, but I I loved hearing those countdowns. And so on Saturdays, we would be listening. And, you know, when you get to the top of the charts, how Casey would say, before we get to this week's top three, let's take a look at some of the tops of Billboard's other charts. I thought Michelle, my wife's face, was going to just drop off because Casey said, and number one on the Black Singles chart, I mean, it literally, that chart was called the Black Singles chart as up to 1988, early 90s. It was, you're right. There were records that they just felt were predominantly for RB or urban, or urban AC radio. It was ridiculous.
0: Yeah, because I had a chance to interview Lilo Thomas, who was signed to Capitol and a part of the Hush Productions camp with uh, Paul Lawrence, Melville Moore, Kashif, uh, Freddie Jackson, and how he told me a story how he went to go promo a record at the R&B station in a certain market, and then there was a top 40 station across the hall, and was running like, hey, how come we can't go over here, and we only got to stay in our lane over here, and of course, like I was referring to earlier, the politics of the business and how stay in your lane, but... As we saw in George Michael's documentary that he did before he passed, how when Faith came out, it was the first album that went number one on the R&B charts by a white act. He was getting airplay on BET because I remember seeing his videos constantly on Video Soul. Then Faith ended up winning the American Music Awards for Black Artists of the Black Artists and Favorite R&B Album, and there was a big backlash and uproar saying, "How can this guy?" come from England, do our stuff, do it better, get pop appeal and win these awards that's traditionally for black. And I think he felt the weight of that and then that's why he named the album Listen Without Prejudice because, you know, you don't want to be pigeonholed by race. Music is music. But once again, race is not exclusive to America because other countries have their racism, their caste systems too. But Is just the fact that the industry likes labels, likes boxes. Because labels and boxes are safe and comfortable.
1: Yeah. And there's that other George Michael story where Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis remixed Monkey. Mm -hmm. And Monkey was the first song to go to number one on the hot black singles chart. And I believe that was right around the time there, and you mentioned his name, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't there kind of a beef between Freddie Jackson and George Michael over Monkey that had had like something like had blocked a song, one of his songs or had kept it out of the top spot or something?
0: That, that was the, that I'm not sure. But I read or saw in an interview that Jimmy and Terry Lewis did for Red Bull Music Academy that George Michael called up Jimmy and Terry and was telling them, hey, give me a record similar to the cool summer mix of Nasty by Janet. And that's how the remix for Monkey
1: came about. Oh, yeah. And and like I said, they were doing it and talking about Jimmy Jan and Terry Lewis, we were talking about things they were doing. This is completely separate from that discussion, but I don't want to forget it. Did you read about when they were working with her? how they had to go back in because Herb Albert wouldn't release the rights uh, to clear the sample for Making Love in the Rain for hers record? And so because Jimmy Jam and Jerry Lewis were the songwriters, they went back in and just played the record again. They they, they went back and recreated that song that they had done for Herb's album, Keep Your Eye on Me. So it's like you said, and my point to saying that is to talk about all these red tapes you have to cut through to get something done.
0: No, I didn't know that that was a workaround because they couldn't get the sample cleared.
1: Yeah. They for what and that really blew my mind. I was really surprised that Herb wouldn't clear that sample. But the two sample, the two things that you have to do to clear a track is you have to get the artist and the songwriters. And since that was the workaround because they wrote the song, they were like, you know what, we'll just it's our song so we can perform it again, which is kind of what has enabled Taylor Swift to go back and do her re-recordings.
0: Yeah, because a lot of these artists who signed away their master's rights when signing their contract and the labels wouldn't release them by re-recording their records, that's a workaround to say, I own these. I can perform these records again because I am the sole owner of them. These are my records. And that's the one thing now that's good about the internet is that information is out there. Artists coming into the industry are more business savvy as opposed to Back when hip-hop was starting and everybody was sampling, it was the Wild Wild West where you had to hope the song didn't get to be too big of a hit because it became too big of a hit. Um, I'm going to need you to do a cease and desist, take those albums off the shelf. Stop playing that record because you illegally used this sample unless you pay us. See the Turtles and uh, them suing De La Soul for not using... I know, legally, on Three Feet High and Rising, uh, rest in peace, True Goy, but, you know, rap during that time, it was almost where you hope somebody didn't hear your record and you didn't get caught illegally sampling, because either you didn't have the money up front to clear it, or the labels just didn't do the proper paperwork and go above ground to get the sample cleared.
1: Well, we're talking about money and the way things are going and a lot of the industry uh, executives are doing things, the states are doing things. I want to ask you a question. What is your take on all the vault releases from the Prince Estate? Like, we've got diamonds and pearls about to drop next month. What do you think about this stuff? Does it make you happy to hear this stuff or do you feel like it's almost sacrilegious? Because if it was in the vault, it was never intended for us to hear.
0: Oh, man. First off, you know, when Prince died, for me, that was like, man, you know, this man, very, very creative. Music just poured out of him with ease. He ate, slept, breathed it. And I'm thinking, like, along the same lines, where if it it's in the vault, it was in there for a reason. It was meant not to be released, it was an unfinished work. And he probably didn't want it to come out just how. I kind of feel them making Paisley Park almost like a museum piece. Yeah. It almost feels, like sacrilegious to where, you know, this man, he was very protective and guarded over his stuff. And to see his image on T-shirts, you know, making hand over fist and money with re-releases. It almost kind of feels like the business got in the way of like mm, Prince probably wouldn't want all this. He probably said, been- nope, shut it down.
1: For me, getting to move up here just four hours uh, from from Minneapolis, I did make that trip over there and go check it out. If you have not been, it is worth your time. And it's a very interesting space to be in. It's almost, you feel like you're, not to be blasphemous, but you feel like you're on holy ground. You know, it's a very special vibe in that place. The one thing that gave me a little peace about it as a Prince fan and a music lover is the fact that i had heard and you don't know if they're telling you this just to make you feel better that it was his intention to kind of open things up to the public if that's true it's better but it could have been the the estate spin on it but i'm with you some of these tracks there was a reason he never they never saw the light of day and i just can't help but wonder but part of me selfishly likes to hear some stuff i've never heard before
0: yeah, because um, I had read the memoir that he was working on before he died, The Beautiful Ones, and it kind of felt like later towards the end, he was starting to open up more, be more vulnerable. I mean, the piano and the microphone tour where he's just sitting down yeah. playing his records, sharing stories where it felt like you were watching an episode of VH1 Storytellers. It felt like he was starting to really embrace the fans and take those walls down, and then he ended up passing away, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, that that was one of the first celebrity deaths, that and the Michael Jackson thing. I remember it, you, those deaths, you'll always remember where you were. Michael, Whitney, and Prince. I can tell you exactly where I was when I heard that news. And Michael Jackson, like the same thing. That first album that came out that had, um, oh, what's his name? I can't remember who was producing that record. Um, the, it came out in two thousand eight or so, that first Michael Jackson album that just is not good. Um, are you talking about the Escape album? No. There were some tracks on Escape. It was the one before Escape. I know what you're talking about. The names escapes me at the moment. Me too. And there are some cuts on there that they even questioned the authenticity of Michael's voice and even wondered if that was actually Michael singing. So it opens a lot of questions when you pull out those ball tracks right and
0: let's talk about michael jackson for a minute and how he was one of those artists he came along that line in that time of where i gotta make records to cross over to pop and how let's give walter yetnikoff credence for standing up for michael and saying hey i'm gonna pull all the videos from Columbia, cbs from your library mtv if you do not play Michael Jackson. Rick James was was sounding the alarm early on, but it really took Michael and Prince to break down that wall at MTV to accept Black artists. And I don't know if you saw this video on YouTube. There's a video of an old interview that David Bowie, rest in peace, did with MTV. And he was grilling Mark Goodman about the lack of Black artists on MTV and how, you know, Mark was towing the company line and saying, you know, MTV is not, you know, a channel that plays so-and-so because we want to appeal to Jan in Iowa, Mm -hmm. Nebraska, cold word for
1: white folks. White audiences. Yeah. They didn't want to do anything that could be perceived as, you know, rocking the boat or Anything like that. And I don't think a lot of people realize that from 1981 to 1980, early 82, you weren't going to see a whole lot of black artists at all. That was you're right. You're absolutely right. And you really didn't see it until that move was made right when those thriller videos were starting to drop. Was it which came first, beat it or Billie Jean? Um, Billie Jean came first. And, that mid, and you'll remember those videos, a lot of us, the first place we saw them were on shows like NBC's Friday Night Videos. And if you were because see, we didn't even have cable. I mean, these back in the day, that was your only outlet was Friday Night Videos. And then you might have a friend's house and you could go over and watch MTV. But it didn't change where you began to see a lot more diversity until I would say 83, 84, 85. Especially, but by the time you got to 1986, things had changed a lot more for the better.
0: Right. And how 86 this was right around the time where you kind of had the origins of New Jet Swing. Like I mentioned, Teddy Riley, of course, is being the catalyst to start that. But you could kind of sort of hear it earlier on in the works with Full Force and what they were doing with Lisa Lisa and Nicole Jam. UTFO, their own work, Cheryl, Pepsi Riley, and how they were meshing hip hop and R&B together. But it really was Teddy that really put it all together and really made it happen with Guy's debut album, uh, the production that he did on I'll Be Shores and Effect Mode album. And of course, Keith Sweat, work, yeah. Yeah. And of course, Keith Sweat, Make It Last Forever, the pillar album of New Jack Swing. And then, of course, My Prerogative.
1: Oh, yeah. The the stuff that Teddy Riley did, and he was even, to me, moving things forward with these established artists, because by the time the Dangerous album was about to be released, Michael Jackson knew that he had to do something new. Q, Quincy Jones will always be a legend, but by this point, he knew if he wanted to appeal to a larger, younger audience, he had to bring in a new producer. And the stuff that Teddy Riley did on the Dangerous album is just amazing.
0: Yeah, an amazing album, and for radio today, going to jump a little bit, how does radio find its place now with the media landscape changing to where it doesn't have the impact that it once did, you have podcasting, you have the internet, and pretty much people are using radio as a secondary option when they don't have the streaming abilities in the car.
1: I think radio will always have a strong place, a strong slice of the pie, if you will. But like you said, radio's got to evolve. Radio has got to continue to offer some of the uh, some of those podcasts. A lot of the companies are requiring their air personalities to have podcasts, to go back and do these best of, to go back and break some of these records. And fortunately, for some of the more larger independently owned stations, for those PDs, the opportunity to play some of these new records. I think that radio will always, for a lot of people, be a place of comfort. Um, streaming provides us the opportunity to go hear the whole album, but if we don't know about the first song to begin with, we may not dive into these artists. I think it's always going to be the safe haven where a lot of people hear things the first time. Right, because it was back
0: in the era when you were now listening to the radio, how DJs got famous for being the first to break a record nationally before all the other markets caught on because that's how a lot of stations ended up becoming known for like, oh, you're the station responsible for this. But I'm not sure if you may know this little tidbit about New Kids on the Block. So they were originally marketed as an R&B group. Please Mm -hmm. Don't Go Girl was initially only being marketed towards R&B. They did a video version of Please Don't Go Girl that you only saw on BET or any other outlets that specifically catered to r and the record wasn't really making no noise. They were about to get dropped. There was a radio station in Tampa, a Top 40 station. I guess the DJ heard the record on a whim on the r station. I saw it on BET. Played Please Don't Go Girl. And that ended up turning the tide for them. And the success came after that when... They weren't even marketed towards pop at all, and once that change happened, when I interviewed Danny Wood, he had said that Columbia Records started getting calls from all these top forty stations to say, "Hey, who are these guys? You got a hit record in here, here, and here," and that's where the label would say, oh, we've been doing this all wrong. So let's ditch the R&B marketing approach.
1: We're going full tilt pop." Yeah. That was an interesting era that the New Kids came up in because basically, a lot of people felt like that was, for lack of a better word, the white version of New Edition because that was Maurice Starr's project. They they
0: were. They they were. You know, I interviewed Maurice, and Maurice pretty much told me flat out, like, hey, let's take New Edition. Let's put these faces on it, and it's going to be just as big, if not bigger, than New Edition. And boy, was he right. And let's give him credit or creating the biggest pop group in the world and how him discovering New Edition, him creating New Kids on the Block, changed the face of popping R&B for the past four decades.
1: Oh, absolutely. And like, I don't know about you, but when you had uh, New Kids and New Edition doing the Battle of Boston on the award show, I can't remember which one it was. Was it the AMAs? Yeah, it was the AMAs. That was phenomenal. You know, I I I
0: enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I was like fan of both groups, knowing their legacies and their impact on the industry are so intertwined and how new kids always gave the fact like, hey, if it wasn't for new edition, there'll be no us.
1: I thought that the respect that both of them, the mutual admiration that they have between them was just something that it's nice to see that you don't see that much anymore, you know.
0: Yeah, you really don't you really don't see that. Like I said, both groups from Boston, one from Roxbury, one from Dorchester, just down the street, and how it wasn't for them, No Boys to Men, NSYNC, Bashy Boys, 98 Degrees, any pop R and B group that's came out within the past 40 years have had directly or indirectly been influenced by one of those two groups.
1: Yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see because you'll notice this whole Boy band cycle kind of comes up on these 10-year intervals because you had, you know, the breakout of new edition in 83 with Candy Girl, even though they kind of formed like officially 45 years ago in 78, but the real mm-hmm. success came with the with 83. And then uh the first album in 84, All for Love in 85. Then you move so 10 years, then you get new kids. Then another 10 years, you get NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. And then another 10 years, you get One Direction. So it's going to be interesting to kind of see how these the, the industry is going to, if they're going to manufacture something like that, or we're going to see something organically.
0: Right. And I'm curious to know, what was your one male group that you felt was good, but for reasons or another, didn't really have the success that they should have had, you know, underrated male r group.
1: I think Guy should have been bigger than they were. I think Guy had a lot of success and will always have a huge place uh, in in R&B music. But I think mainstream Guy should have been bigger. Mm. I was listening to, I was diving into you. You brought up Teddy. I was diving into the first album and then going back uh to the future and listening to the second one and even guy three had some stuff on there i just don't know why radio didn't embrace it more right i love that album
0: right for me my answer has always been troop
1: oh yeah especially the second troop album
0: yeah the attitude album you know i had a chance to interview rodney alan steve and John John, and for me, True is my second favorite group up with New Edition. But Attitude, that album, the production was great. I mean, it was some of the earlier works of Dallas Austin before he really took off with what he did with Voiced men on Coulier Harmony, ABC, TLC, and all the productions that he did after that. And then also, I don't know if you know this, but Trent Reznor, yes, that Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails was an engineer on the Attitude
1: album. I didn't know that. No, I did not I'll tell you another one after seven was right there. on They I think. Had they kind of been handled the way boys to men were, they could have been a contender, too, because they had some amazing stuff.
0: Yeah. Kavon Edmonds vocally, no slouch. Melvin Edmonds, rest in peace. No slouch vocally either. And how, you know, your your brother is baby face. So, you know, you're getting. Top notch songs, top notch production. Um, but I want to go back with Truth for a minute. Um, you know the song Turned Away by Chucky e. Booker, right? Right. You know that record was originally supposed to go to Truth. Huh.
1: No, I did not.
0: So let me explain to you the story. So I interviewed Chucky e. Booker. Chucky e. Booker told me that Turned Away was originally supposed to go for Truth. So when he played it for Sylvia Rome, who was head of Atlantic Records at the time. She told him, nope, this is going on your album. And he tried to convince her, like, no, this is a Troop record. She's like, nope, this is for you. So when he told Troop that Sylvia told him, nah, I got to keep turned away from me. They were like, hey, man, we want a record similar to that. And that's how we get Spread My Wings.
1: Okay, I can see that. It's interesting, though, when you talk about hearing a record and knowing an artist or that the songwriter has in mind for them, and knowing a certain sound. You remember, for me, one of the things that's absent in pop music right now is the definitive sound of a producer. Mm-hmm. Like in the 80s, when you heard a, a Jam Lewis record, you knew who it was, whether it was Janet, whether it was Human League, whether it was Herb Albert, whoever it was, you knew their sound. When it was the 90s, you knew a LeFace record, period. And a lot of those records, you would see a lot of these artists Splitting producers, half of Bobby Brown's a prime example of Teddy Riley stuff and LaFace stuff on "Don't Be Cruel." You just and then you got into the Jermaine Duprees of the early two thousands. Do you see anybody out there that you're hearing their sound like Khaled or anybody? There's nobody out there that just has a definitive sound to me. Yeah, not not really. But
0: we just recently wrapped a six album run with Nas and Hit Boy. Nas just released Magic 3 on Thursday, September 15th. We're recording this on a Saturday. And that him and Hit Boy, they just did six albums together, the King Disease Trilogy, and then the Magic Trilogy. And a little side note, Hit Boy, the producer, is the nephew of Rodney from Troop.
1: Okay. We're bringing it back full circle again. That's
0: cool. Yeah, yeah. So go check out my interview with Ronnie Benford and he talks about Troop and hip boys beginnings and all of that and how I feel that the shifting will come back around to boy groups, girl groups, because we're seeing with the K-pop phenomenon, with BTS and Twice and all those acts coming out of there, it's pretty much where they're following the boy band formula here and also the formula from what Motown did with the artist development because they groomed these acts early on and they pretty much pretty much taking US pop, US R and B,
1: US hip hop and giving it a far east flavor. Right. And I think the thing is right now, like I said, we're just seeing in a, a drought and in, in hip hop and pop. Like go look I said, look at those charts and you'll see that country has just crept in and taken those slots because you don't have a lot of hit makers, a lot of those big marquee names right now. I think one to watch might be Olivia Rodrigo. Um, I think she's doing some interesting stuff right now. Um, I don't see just that dominant solo male like we used to see that was out there. Who do you think is going to lead the charge right now?
0: That I do not know. And it's funny that you mentioned Olivia Rodrigo. I believe she... Comes from the long line of kids that was discovered by the mouse, and how the mouse sure knows how to pick them. I mean, her, Selena Gomez, Zendaya, Brittany, Christina, Justin, JC, Carrie Russell, Ryan Gosling, the list goes on and on of all of those heavy hitters that we see today, all started on that show or the network that the mouse built down in Orlando, Florida.
1: And you got to wonder, when you listen to the Olivia Rodrigo albums, there is definite flavor of other artists that we've heard. Um, And I can't help but think that to some degree, maybe subconsciously, some of these producers feel the comfort in some of these records, how like something might sound like Paramore, or something might sound like for me, the new single that just dropped, uh, Get Him Back, sounds like a Beck record. It sounds like Beck. It sounds like Loser. You can, if you listen to it, you can hear kind of the flavor there. So it's interesting to see. Right. And let's talk about real quick, the rise in,
0: you know, Spanish speaking music, you know, because I remember being a kid, you know, not a lot of Spanish records really crossed over to top 40. The one that I remember crossing over the top 40, was the Bayside Boys remix of Macarena, and then what we saw in when reggaeton started to creep nationally with Gasolina by Daddy Yankee, and that kind of led to the evolution of what we see now with Bad Bunny, Becky yeah. G and Howard Bad Bunny, he said like, okay, I'm not going to make an album in English to cross over to the U.S. market. I'm just going to put out a straight Spanish album, and you're going to come to me Instead of me coming to you like how it was with Richie Valens, Gloria Stefan, and all of the Latinx acts prior to had to do in order to gain that mainstream acceptance. And I guess that's the good thing about the internet and how we've evolved where we want to hear what you do instead of you giving us a version of what we think we want to hear.
1: Oh, I agree totally. And I think it's wonderful to see these artists come into their own right and not have to water down what they do and give us the Taco Bell version of traditional Mexican food of music, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, I'm like you. I think it's almost embarrassing to look at some of the records that were charted. When you mentioned the first one that I remember that was a crossover was Gerardo. Rico Rico Torave. Which was almost embarrassing in tone if you look at what it is today if we're really to hold a microscope up to it it's almost a caricature of the culture and now this is a complete move in the other way to authenticity and to be true to an entire people in my opinion
0: right and it's funny you mentioned gerardo gerardo i believe he was working as an exec at interscope records and he was the one that got Enrique Iglesias his deal with Interscope to cross them over to the U.S. market.
1: Yeah, I mean, so everything leads to a path. And I guess it's finally nice like that we say that we have the ability to go out and seek these things out. Because not to talk about the hand that has fed me for almost 30 years, radio is not going to give you that stuff. You have to do a little bit of the legwork yourself to find some of this stuff and it's nice to see some of these artists having this crossover success. I mean, who would have thought, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago that an artist like Bad Bunny would be selling out stadiums doing complete full Spanish shows.
0: Right. Who who would have thought and how now with the internet with internet culture and 15 minutes of fame, TikTok and folks getting famous lip-syncing, it brings back to mind how you know back in the late 80s, early 90s you know, Millie Vanilli was killing the game with, girl, you know, it's true, blaming it on the rain. And I believe there's a documentary coming out on Paramount Plus next month, which talks about, you know, their rise, their fall and, you know, rest in peace. I have the to Rock tell you. Latest and how Millie Vanilli, I mean, hate on them if you want to. You were bumping, girl, you know, it's true, circa 89, circa 1990.
1: I was at that show. Not the one where it was exposed, but I saw that cl- that Coca-Cola Club MTV tour. I saw Millie Vanilli Live. That, that and wasn't the it show was, where the
0: records get right.
1: It wasn't. I didn't see that show, but I saw one of the shows. And the thing about it, you're absolutely right. That album was a classic. I, I For me, I hate that the artists that I've heard their names before who sang on the record... Girl, you know it's true. Don't, for, uh, babe, don't forget my number. Blame it on the ring. Girl, I'm gonna miss you. I mean, that was a killer record.
0: Period. Great, great records. Great, great songs. And I had heard, I don't know how true it is, that Don't Take It Personal by Jermaine Jackson was originally intended for Millie Vanilli, but they passed. I'm not sure how true it is, um, but that was definitely a great record for Jermaine, who I felt underrated his solo career yeah
1: because he was label mates with him at the time wasn't he
0: uh i believe so because they wouldn't release tell me i'm not dreaming as a single because michael was featured on it and i guess michael's label didn't want to give the clearance to release that as a single so it was just an album cut but of course that song became a bigger hit later when it was covered by the late robert palmer
1: yeah yeah That's funny you mentioned him. I was thinking Robert Palmer's another one of those artists that I don't think got enough credit for the work that he did because his body of work is so much deeper and, and greater than Addicted to Love. Like some of that later stuff that he did and the stuff before that.
0: Right, and another band that I think don't get enough credit for what they did and especially David Frank with his work on the production, synths, and keyboards, The System.
1: Oh yeah. The System, that one record... Which everybody goes to, don't disturb this group. But there was the album before that. And there's stuff on that album that that just if you haven't heard it, you should go back and give it a listen. And you can also
0: take a listen to my throwback interview with Mick Murphy from the system available on YouTube and on Beyond the album cover. And David Frank, I believe he's one of the writers on the hardest thing for 98 degrees. Oh wow.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a real six degrees of separation from a lot of these artists, how they're all connected. Like, for example, Robbie Neville, um, who had two strong albums. By the time you got to the third album, day one, he had kind of dropped off the charts. But now he's a writer for a lot of the Disney shows. And, like, he wrote a lot of stuff for High School Musical and all that. So these guys are still out there doing it. You just don't know it.
0: Right. Shout out to Robbie Neville. And also he wrote The Right Kind of Love for Jeremy Jordan. He was on Mm -hmm. uh, 90210 and Big Teen Idol back in the early 90s. His album... Try My Love, very underrated. And uh, Giant Records, underrated label when we want to talk about R&B and hip-hop crossing over because if you look at the acts that Giant had, they had him, Color Me Bad, Jade, Christopher Williams, I believe, was on Giant Records. And shout out to Cassandra Mills. You can catch my throwback interview with her on YouTube and also throwback interview with Jeremy Jordan and Kevin Thornton from Color Me Bad on YouTube and how... It felt like the 90s, early two thousands too, was kind of that last era where you really had your radio on shuffle, where if you tune into Top 40 across the board, you didn't know what you were going to hear within the next three to four minutes because the records were so vastly different.
1: And that was the thing that literally was a conversation in this house the other day. Uh, my wife and I were talking about how wonderful What a palette it was, if you will, to listen to Top 40 Radio at that time, how all these songs just lived together and how nice that not every song sounded the same and everybody was so formulaic. It was a good time. Good time for radio.
0: Great time for radio. Great time for the listeners. And uh, let's talk about what you're doing now and, you know, anything that you're currently working on that you want people to know.
1: I am, like I said, I'm kind of waiting for the next evolution of what that's going to be, taking some time back from having hosted a successful morning show for for many, many years, kind of enjoying writing and producing right now, Um, working on a project that, talking about radio, and I resisted jumping into the podcast game. I'll leave that to the experts like you, Uh, but I wanted to launch an internet radio station That i'm working on the project is titled last dj radio and it is something to be forward to it's going to uh dive into some of those lost treasures that we've talked about and it's a work in progress so i hope to have that launch maybe by as we get into the new year
0: yeah and you know you definitely have a spot to come back when everything becomes official and i'm putting my bid in is there anything you need from me you know where to find me. So before we conclude the interview, any shout outs you want to give and whatnot and what have you?
1: Uh, again, want to th- give thanks uh, and shout outs to uh, my Cumulus family back in Baton Rouge. I mentioned my one of my number one fans and friends, the legendary uh, DJ Incredible, DJ Boosie back in Baton Rouge. Uh, Scott Ennis, the voice of Scooby-Doo, who was my afternoon drive personality who's holding it down back there and just all the DJs who keep doing what they're doing right now, and the people who keep telling the stories like you and letting people know all those unsung tales yes sir and
0: that's what we try to do here at beyond the album cover and you can follow the podcast wherever you stream podcasts on youtube at youtube.com beyond the album cover and follow the podcast on facebook at facebook.com beyond the album cover ladies and gentlemen let's give a big round of applause and thank you for Mr Jeff Johnson for coming on he is on that personality and production director for Midwest Communications Jeff thank you for coming on thanks for having me all right